We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Welcome, everybody. It's Steve coming at you once again with Michael Graney of 10 books, 10 battles every Catholic should know. We had him on for the author uh, author spotlight or book review, whatever I'm calling it. I don't know anymore. But anyway, we're on today to talk about the C word. And we're not talking about conspiracy. We're talking about communism. So, Michael, welcome back. Thank you for coming on for this. And today we're just look, basically putting the groundwork on because we're trying to keep this under 30 hours. <laughs> 30 hours or 30 weeks thanks for having me again you're welcome i, I say it's good to be back except going over zoom it's starting to say well back where I mean, <laughs> <laughs> glad but thank you for letting me click on <laughs> <laughs> well when we say go to from the beginning with this we're actually going from what i call the quasi beginning because this sort of thing uh it goes back to the beginning i mean uh G.K. Chesterton, you know, happened to mention it, you know, in one of her, one of his books, the one on Aquinas, uh-huh. that you know the Catholic Church has from the very beginning be torn has been torn by these conflicts, you know, outside the church, and the more deadly one inside the church, uh-huh. and frankly, communism or socialism, which is actually linked to modernism and esotericism, they all go together. They're all part of the same movement as what has been tearing the church, you know, tearing at the church from the outside and from the inside, which is, of course is far more deadly because people think a lot of this stuff is authentic Catholic doctrine. I mean, they don't even question it anymore. Mm. I mean, it's found its way into the, the 1986, which was Economic Justice for All, the Bishop's Pastoral, uh, the U.S. Bishop's Pastoral. Mm. They're actually citing New Age and socialist authorities in that thing. Yeah. But our story today begins in the late 17th century with what I call the financial revolution. Now, I'm not sure you'll find that in the history books. But in 1694, the first true central bank was founded, the Bank of England. And basically what a central bank is, is a commercial bank for commercial banks. Unless, of course, you're English, in which case it's a mercantile bank for mercantile banks. The commercial or mercantile banking system backed up by a central bank has one purpose, and that is to supply adequate liquidity, you know, credit or what they used to call accommodation for productive purposes for the private sector. In order to get its charter, the Bank of England managed to uh, give a sufficient bribe to the government of William and Mary, which was in the form of lending money to the government which the bank was never intended to do. Nowadays, of course, people think that all central banks do is create money for government, which leaves the private sector hanging. And I have another whole lecture on the nature of money, the definition of money, but we want to get to, to the commies today. <laughs> Stick with the reds. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So 
that's where the, the financial revolution started. Now, because it was based on the belief that you had to have existing savings or existing wealth in order to secure these loans of newly created money, it tended to concentrate wealth faster than you did under the old system where you didn't have a central bank or a commercial banking system. And this accelerated the, the economic disenfranchisement of the, the ordinary person, which in England began probably at an accelerated rate under the Tudors, where you know most people blame Henry VIII for that. It was actually Henry VII who was considered one of the most miserly men in Europe. After he usurped the throne from Richard III, and we won't get into that because that's yet another story. Uh, There's exogramps everywhere. <laughs> uh, Henry VIII confiscated you know, the, the wealth of the church, the patrimony of the poor, and concentrated it in the hands of his favorites. It took 800 years to accumulate this stuff. He th dissipated it, I almost used another word, in five years. So what the commercial banking and central banking system did was accelerate the process of you know creating a powerless population people who didn't own who ended up having to work for wages now what really kicked that into high gear however was the industrial revolution that was able but that was enabled by the financial revolution because now all of a sudden people had the financing to turn all these wonderful ideas into reality which meant that the rich who formerly owned all the land now owned all the land and all the uh, technological capital as well. And more and more people were being forced into the wage system. <clears throat> now, coupled with that were the political revolutions. And we won't get into the, the whole difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. We'll just say that pretty much the whole revolutionary idea uh, combined with the Industrial Revolution and the Financial Revolution, and except in America, where it was staved off for a while, and there, of course there were other problems there like treatment of the Native peoples and slavery, by and large most people were becoming rapidly powerless because they didn't own anything. Now, <clears throat> following the French Revolution, what you had was a lot of people who had a, a vision of how they could become, you know, could acquire power again. And that was overthrow the old order, get rid of traditional political systems, get rid of traditional family systems, but most of all, get rid of traditional Christianity, most importantly, the Catholic Church. And this new movement came into being, and they weren't sure what to call it at first. Uh, they called it the democratic religion. Uh, they called it the new Christianity. Others called it Neo-Catholicism. It's got a million different names. Uh, I think Monsignor Ronald Knox called it enthusiasm or ultra-supernaturalism, which he defined as an excess of charity that causes disunity. Uh, in other words, they, they love mankind so much that they hate everybody. It, you, you remember the old Peanuts comic strip with uh, Linus and Charlie Brown. Linus says something to the effect that I love mankind, it's the people I can't stand. <laughs> That's enthusiasm, according to Monsignor Ronald Knox. Uh, Chesterton called it Manichaeism. Now, that gets a little bit confusing because sometimes he uses Manichaeism properly as the name of a specific thing. 
But then he also refers to it in such a way as that the whole spirit was Manichaeist, Man Manichaean, sorry. It's hard to pronounce some of these things. Uh, Gregory the Sixteenth and Leo the Thirteenth, they called it rerum novarum, new things. And Benedict XV, you know, the Pope that nobody remember, ever remembers in 1914 to 1922, he called it the spirit of modernism. And then it also has other names, of course, like fideism. Uh, the Nazis called it the triumph of the will, triumph des Willens. If you've ever heard of Lenny Riefenstahl's famous film, Triumph of the Will, that, that's it. I mean, that's the spirit of the new things, the new movement. The, the whole movement behind socialism, communism, modernism, and esotericism. And if you ever th heard anything about you know the Nazis and the occult, that was all tied in there too. Uh, and of course, in today, it's the spirit of Vatican II, which as anybody who's bothered to really look at it rather than have a knee-jerk reaction, the spirit of Vatican II doesn't really have anything to do with Vatican II. It's a great uh, Halloween costume too. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> yeah. And basically, the whole thing is people wanting to take shortcuts to uh, around natural law and established institutions in order to get what they want. This gives the basic principle of the new things, which is the end justifies the means. If you want it and you can figure out a way to rationalize it or justify it, you can have it. Uh, as Heinrich Roman, you know, the, the solidarist juris, you know, legal scholar and, and uh, jurist, I couldn't think of that word for a second, uh, put it, he says, ultimately, what this means is that might makes right. If you can get enough power, you can force what you want on everybody else, and it becomes the right thing to do. Whether or not it's objectively good or not, it's the triumph of the will. It's the shift from the intellect, you know, trying to figure out what's right by what is God's nature. This is the big question in the Middle Ages. Do we base the natural law on God's nature and our human reason in trying to figure that out by what we observe in human nature? Or do we base it on what's some, something that we accept as God's will, God's command, as interpreted by somebody who has enough power to force that interpretation on others? That's why they say, you know, the, the possibly apocryphal Platonist dialogist, I guess, uh, Callicles the sophist was, might makes right. And Plato tried to argue around that, but then he kind of got caught up in his own theory of ideals that exist independent of the human minds that create them. Well, then how do we know which ideal is right? Well, who's ever strongest to force it on anybody else? This is where he differed from Aristotle. But of course, that is yet another lecture. <laughs> okay. Uh, so basically, the, the, the principle of the new things that it most are subject today of the new, are, are the portion of the new things we're looking at today, of course, is socialism slash communism. It actually doesn't matter which term you use. They're pretty much interchangeable. And I'll explain why as soon as we get to Karl Marx who popularized communism, uh, excuse me, popularized the term communism, sorry about that. Uh, so, and the, the idea, and this is important, it, it permeates every socialist movement that ever existed. 
It, it permeates modernism. It permeates esotericism, new age. And a lot of it depends on how you define the terms. But it's to establish the kingdom of God on earth. That phrase is so persistent in early socialism that it was practically a hallmark. Anytime you heard the kingdom of God on earth, you know, the terrestrial paradise, utopia, uh, that was, you know, the goal of the new things. And in fact, uh, a century later, or 40 years after, if you prefer, as soon as Pius XI was elected, he announced that his whole goal was to oppose the new things, and he took as his motto, the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ, not the kingdom of God on earth, but the reign of Christ the King in heaven. Mm -hmm. And emphasized that Jesus, when he was before Pilate, said, my kingdom is not of this world, which was uh, a rather indirect and gentle rebuke to all these people said, oh no, we have to establish utopia here. We have to establish the kingdom of God on earth, regardless of what we define as God. I mean, uh, there, there are so many different definitions of God. Like for Karl Marx, it was the state. Mm -hmm. For Emil Durkheim, the, the proto-solidarist, it was a divinized society. Uh, Chesterton said it was the inner light. I mean, so whatever kingdom of God on earth you want to establish depends, of course, who has the power to do it. And if ordinary people don't have power because they don't own private property, guess who's going to establish their own kingdom in their own like image and likeness? And this is, this is why Fulton Sheen, in one of his books, pointed out, he says, all these efforts to establish a heaven on earth always turn into a hell for some reason. Uh, <clears throat> seen that today. So, yeah. So, so, so to get back to the early 19th century, uh, not that we want to, but uh, uh, in 1825, a man named Henri de Saint-Simon, I cannot pronounce French, trust me. No Henri de Saint-Simon, okay. Uh, actually, his full name was, let me see if I got it here. Claude Henri de Rouvray, Comte de Saint Simon, and all the people who speak French are going to call in and give you nasty things on how I uh, pronounce that. And in his book, which is published a few months after his death in 1825, he said, The whole of society ought to strive towards the amelioration of the moral and physical existence of the poorest class. Society ought to organize itself in the way best adapted for attaining this end. That sounds really good. It sounds so good that Pope John Paul II had to remind the bishops of North and South America in 1999 in his Ecclesia in America, paragraph 67, if you're interested, that, you know, love for the poor should be preferential, not exclusive. By making your love for the poor exclusive, you're driving people out of the church. The church is not just for the poor, the, the church is for everybody. Mm -hmm. And by driving the people, everybody else out of the church, what you're doing is that these are the very people you need to restructure things so that you can make your love for the poor effective. Go saying in hand. Yeah. yeah. So, but um, St. Simon, uh, believe it or not, his followers established the Church of St. Simon. 
the new Christianity, that was the title of his book in 1825, was uh, La Nouveau Christian Team. I think that's how you say it. Say, just say the new Christianity. We're good. <laughs> and they even established a church. They wore special clothing. Uh, they had what are euphemistically described as uh, events that even in Paris in the 1830s sounded like orgies. And the authorities didn't care for it. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, as I said, nobody's going to believe this stuff. <laughs> uh and basically, they were, they were questioning the established political and religious order, but the Catholic Church was the special target at all times. And uh, did you ever hear of Frederick Ozanam, Blessed Frederick Ozanam? He was the founder of the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Okay. And a lot of the people involved in social justice like to hold him up, and they don't understand or know anything about him. He criticized uh, the St. Simonians, in the, in the first thing he wrote as a pamphlet, as an undergraduate. And uh, the, the diplomat Chateaubriand uh, said, this is a, you did great work. I mean, this nailed them, but why did you waste your time with those nuts? Uh, basically. And I, I, I should have sent you a picture of the St. Simonian costume. But the St. Simonians, aside from hunting for the, the woman goddess who was to lead the world into a new age and a few other things that they were doing, uh, they gave us the St. Simonian Pierre Laloux, who in 1833 invented the term socialism. And he invented it as a pejorative to describe all the non-St. Simonian socialists. Only the St. Simonians were the true socialists. Everybody else was this, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't quite measure up, even though you had all kinds of other socialists like the Fourier, for, <laughs> followers of Charles Fourier. Uh, and of course, the Neo-Catholics, uh, led by Huguet Félicité Robert de Lamennais, l'abbé, <laughs> he was a priest. Uh, he was. He took over the the the, the headship of the neo Catholic movement from when after De Maistre died. You've heard of Joseph De Maistre, mm -hmm. uh, a darling of the ultramontane uh, Catholics. They don't know everything about him, but De Lamennais really took the ball and ran with it. What he did was he has probably had more disastrous influence on the understanding of not merely Catholic theology and Catholic social teaching, but of Catholicism in general. And as we'll see in a, in a little bit, he was the reason that Pius IX called the First Vatican Council, because what Delamine came up with was something he called the theory of certitude. And this was sort of a general sense of humanity that ordinary average human persons could not understand could not reason, according to him, in matters, you know, affecting faith and morals and theology and the nature of man and everything else. Instead, all this was communicated to the Pope by God. Papal infallibility meant that the Pope had all knowledge of everything, mm -hmm. except in, obviously, material sciences and that sort of thing. Uh, and this so far exaggerated the notion of papal infallibility that even to this day, 
there are Catholics who believe that every word the Pope speaks is absolutely infallible. If it was noon and the Pope said it was midnight, it would be midnight, according to some of these people. Obviously, that is not what the Catholic Church teaches, but that's what basically uh, Delamine said it did. Uh, oh, I, I almost forgot. LaRue invented the term socialism as a pejorative. Ten years later, it was being used as the general term for all, you know, socialism, communism, and everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, they take take a, it was a nice sounding word. I mean, socialism, that's a great sounding word. Uh, so is progressivism. Mm -hmm. But then you stop to think, what does that mean now? Uh, uh, anyway, the theory of, the popes met, actually met uh, with Delamine. Uh, actually, Leo XII considered making him a cardinal, but then uh, when he, the more he found out about him, said, I don't think so. He, uh, I, I think the word was, he is an esaltate or something like that. Someone who is so convinced that he is right that he will destroy the world in order to, to recreate things in his own vision. And so he is, he is a dangerous man. And in fact, Leo XII also said, that man should be turned over to the Inquisition. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yet this would have stunned de Lamine, but he was a faithful Catholic. Mm -hmm. He was just trying to put the state under the church. He didn't believe in separation of church and state. He thought that where the radicals wanted the church to come under the state, de Lamine wanted the state to come under the church. That's why he became the leader of the Ultramontane movement. Uh, anyway, in he, he started a journal, L'Avenir, I think that's how you pronounce it, The Future. And it was very influential. Even Frederick Ozanam, before he decided that uh, Delamine was a nutcase, uh, was contributing to it and reading it. And he also had, uh, I'm, I'm going to get these names wrong again. You're fine. <laughs> uh, Jean-Baptiste Henri Dominique Lacordaire who, if you know anything about Dominican history, he refounded later the Dominican order in France. He was a, a, was a, he was a great man, as was uh, Charles Forbes René de Montalembert, who corresponded with, actually Lacordaire did, they both corresponded with John Henry Newman, uh, both before and after uh, he converted to Catholicism. Hmm. I mean, these were the leading intellectual lights of, of France for a while. And Lacordaire and Montalembert were both with uh, de Lamennais when they decided to go to Rome to petition the Pope for, uh, basically, de Lamennais was after an endorsement of his thought. And Lacordaire, who actually suggested the pilgrimage, uh, thought that all they needed was, what he wanted was permission to continue their work. Uh, he hadn't yet at that point decided that what they were doing was not quite right. And Montalembert later in his biography of Lacordaire, I'm really messing up these names. No, dude, better you than me. I'd, I'd be butchering them too. So. <laughs> uh, said, you know, admitted decades later, he said, many of our ideas were good but we exaggerated the good ideas and incorporated some bad ideas to the point where what we were doing was very wrong. And the one who was really leading the way was de Lamennais. 
And so the trio, calling themselves the Pilgrims of God and Liberty, wow. in 1831 went to Rome to try to get the permission of the Pope, this was Gregory XVI by this time, uh, for their activities and their thought and basically everything they were doing. And uh, let's see, after a while, Gregory actually, you know, greeted them courteously and very friendly. He thought Delamine was a genius. He just needed a little bit of correction and guidance, especially given the uh, rather precarious situation of the uh, papal states at that time. You know, most people who paint Gregory the 16th as the consummate villain of the uh, 19th century of the popes, they don't bother to look at what was going on politically. I mean, you had Austria, you had Sardinia, you had France, you had everybody and his brother trying to take hold over the papal states. Mm -hmm. Then you had internal rebellions from the radicals trying to, you know, basically kill the Pope, get rid of the Catholic Church, and establish the Roman Republic or whatever, to, whatever they wanted in its place. I mean, the moment Gregory XVI's election was announced, there were riots and uprisings all through the papal states. Uh, so it was rather astounding that Gregory the Sixteenth met with the Pilgrims of God and Liberty, uh, and of course all the history books, the ones that mention it, make special note of the fact that they were carefully instructed not to bring politics into the discussion. They would discuss theology. Well, what else are you going to supposed to discuss with the Pope anyway? <laughs> but Delamine was not pleased. I mean. La Caudère and Montalembert were, were very gratified at the Pope's friendliness and basically gave them permission to continue even their political activities, just tone it down a bit. I mean, in L'Avenir, they were calling for, you know, let's eliminate kings. Let's get, you know, get rid of the old order completely and establish democratic republics. Unfortunately, what La Caudère and Montalembert thought of as liberal democracy was not quite the same thing that, Le, that uh, de Lamine thought of as liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. See, it was about this time that Alexis de Tocqueville, you may have heard of him, came to the United States. He was going to write on prison reform. But what he saw in light of what was going on in England at the time and in France, he realized that, wait a minute, this is a new kind of democracy. This is a different form of liberal democracy than what I, that I saw in France and in England. In France, the idea of liberal democracy was that the collective is sovereign. The state is in charge. The state has rights and doles them out to, to people as expedient or necessary or whatever. In England, the idea of liberal democracy had degenerated rapidly from what was closer to the American model so that it was an elite that had effective rights. Everybody had rights in England, but only an elite had the capacity and the ability to exercise them. So that what you had in France was you had socialism, collectivism. In England, you had individualism and capitalism. In America, you had something different. What de Tocqueville saw there was that the actual human person was sovereign. In other words, God gave rights and effective rights to every single human being. Now, of course, de Tocqueville mentioned that there are some problems in the United States, notably the treatment of Native peoples and the institution of chattel slavery, which, as he said back in 1835, if this is not corrected, it's going to cause some serious problems. Not that we see any such 
problems developing or anything. Uh, so, uh, so what de Tocqueville saw was there are three forms of liberal democracy. There's the American form, there's the English form, and then there's the French form. And what you have is in the French form is collectivism. The uh, English form is individualism, but the American form is what we would later come to call personalism, the human person, not an elite, not the collective as a whole. So that uh, what upset you know, the, the, the papal authorities was the Lamanet was clearly a collectivist. Even his ideas of papal infallibility were collectivist. And they were not going to, you know, you know, endorse that. They gave permission to the to the pilgrims of God and liberty to continue, but Delamine didn't want permission. He wanted an endorsement. He probably wanted an encyclical. Uh, actually, he probably wanted to be pope. Uh, um, so that eventually, you know, Lacordaire and Montalembert went back to France. They said, you know. They tried to convince Delamine to come with them, but no, he was going to get his endorsement, come what may. Well, he didn't get his endorsement. What he got was an, he finally got fed up and left Rome in 1832. This was soon after Gregory XVI condemned the November uprising in Poland. He was probably given bad information, and he probably should not have condemned it. But the new Christians, the socialists, the, and the modernists uh, managed to convince people that the November uprising in Poland was not political. It was to overthrow the kings and the church. So, of course, Gregory XVI condemned it. What would you expect him to do? He was not a very good politician. He was a much better scholar than he was, you know, head of the papal states. Uh, one of the things they always tell you, he didn't like railroads. Well, frankly, if you saw the railroads in 1832, you wouldn't like them very much either. He called them roads of hell. They aren't much better nowadays. But, Slight improvements. You know, and, and my grandfather, great-grandfather, were railroad engineers, so I better, I better be careful. But uh, So in Lacordaire and Montalembert left, and then Delamine got ticked off and left Rome, Two days later, the encyclical Mirare Vos, the first social encyclical, came out. And once Delamine got a look at it, he said, this, this is the end of me, because it, it condemned everything he stood for. It didn't condemn him by name, but it did condemn the ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, and he submitted. But then a little bit later, he desubmitted. He began to write angry letters to his acquaintances, some of whom made the letters public. Uh, and then he was so angry at that, that he decided that, that well, Gregory XVI sent him a letter saying, I want you to submit to Mirare Vos again and, you know, reaffirm your obedience. Now, this is where it gets weird. Delamine immediately resubmitted. Hours later, he repudiated his priesthood, and then a short time after that, renounced Christianity and established his own religion of humanity. Well, that escalated quickly. 
that's I said this is where it gets weird. <laughs> I mean, he really was somewhat loose in the half. The, the Tocqueville later worked with him in the Second Republic. You know, when when they he was the Tocqueville was foreign minister and of course in the uh, the legislature, and uh, De Lamennais was also a member of the legislature, and on a minor point of procedure almost wrecked the entire session of the legislature because he wanted something he wanted discussed discussed in the morning instead of the afternoon and they were trying to send please come back you can't you know disrupt the whole session here at by you know just stomping off in dudgeon because we're going to discuss it at one o'clock instead of ten o'clock and de Tocqueville basically said he was a nut uh he said he had pride enough to walk over the heads of kings and bid defiance to God. Now, not an easy person to work with for some strange reason. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I told you, this is extremely complex, but it all boils down to who is important here, the human person or some abstraction like the state or an elite or something else? I mean, this is why all of Catholic social teaching can be summed up probably in, you know, the single sentence, you know, paraphrasing Karl Marx with respect to communism, respect for the dignity of the human person. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was what drove, you know, Fulton Sheen. It was what drove G.K. Chesterton and was probably the reason Chesterton converted to Catholicism. That's a personal opinion. I don't want the Chestertonians writing in to tell me how wrong I am. <laughs> <laughs> I have his email at the bottom for all hate mail. <laughs> well, put that to the fake address. Right? <laughs> anyway, uh, then uh, Delamine wrote a pamphlet called Words of a Believer. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it in France. But the radicals loved it. The socialists thought it was great. In it, he just basically spewed hatred against kings, priests, aristocrats, anybody who ticked him off. And this called forth the second social encyclical in 1834, Singulare Nos, on the errors of Lamennais. And in it, the Pope, you know, praised de Lamennais's genius and his former work in trying to defend the church against the secularists and the Gallicanists, you know, the, the Gallicanist being, Gallicanism being, uh, you know, where you try to put the, the state in charge of the church. Mm -hmm. And then he said, but he could not tolerate the, this little book, which was small in size, but great in evil. And as he was describing it, he used the, for the first time the expression rerum novarum, the new things to describe what was going on. I mean, this was right when socialism had first been coined, so he couldn't use the term socialism, and I don't think the term modernism had yet been invented either. So it was, he just lumped it all together as new things. And what about half a century or so later, Leo XIII hearkened back to that in his 1891 encyclical titled Rerum Novarum mm -hmm. on labor and capital. Uh, but de Lamine became extremely popular in socialist circles, and some fellow by the name of Orestes Brownson, you may have heard of him. He owes uh, me 10 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of luck getting it. <laughs> Even if he were alive, he probably wouldn't pay. 
and John Henry Newman, you know, were, you know, fairly complimentary toward the, this was before their conversions, uh, to, the, to this little pamphlet and the thought of Delamine, because he, he seemed to be talking in favor of people. But what he meant was the collective. And what Brownson and Newman, of course, meant was the human person, which is why eventually Newman was forced, he considered himself forced to leave the church and convert to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Brownson just got fed up with all the socialists and everything else and figured that he had found, you know, what he could accept as truth in the Catholic church. And he was called uh, Weathercock Brownson, because up to that, to the point of his conversion, it seemed like he was everything under the sun. He was a Unitarian. He was a spiritualist. He was a socialist. You name it, Brownson had probably been it at one time. But once he converted to Catholicism, he never wavered, mm -hmm. even though, of course, people kept accusing him of it for the rest of his life, which was probably not something he wanted to do in the same room with Brownson. Yes. <laughs> he could get rather, in, we'll say, enthusiastic yes. about his opinions <laughs> and start throwing things. I think his the one daughter who took care of him was terrified of him. Anyway, uh, Newman... Uh, of course, also changed his opinion of Delamine afterward, after his conversion. And Newman, unlike Brownson, had a fairly good idea of what liberal democracy was. Newman never did, you know, accept anything as liberal other than the English liberalism and the French liberalism. So liberalism was not a good word for Newman. It was the best word for Brownson. And Newman even said at one point, and this was in the first edition, I, th I think it was the first edition, of Apologia Pro Vita Sua, and I'll get to that in a minute, because <laughs> uh, believe it or not, that involved socialism and communism. Even though most people think, are going, what? That's impossible. Anyway, the Newman said, you know, because he corresponded with Lacordaire and Montalembert, and he said they kept insisting on being liberals. But he said, they must mean something different by liberal than what I mean. And that was all he would say about it. Newman was not a very confrontational guy. Mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, now brings in the Oxford movement. What Gregory XVI was trying to do with his, re with his uh, Thomist revival in the 1830s, the Oxford movement was trying to do for the Church of England. You know, restore it to being... Gregory XVI was trying to preserve Christianity against, you know, the new things. The Oxford movement was trying to restore Christianity to the Church of England, at least as they saw it. And, of course, their opponents were both the reactionaries and the radicals. Uh, let's see. As I said, this is an enormous amount of information, and it's, it's easy to get lost. That's why I keep looking down at my notes here. Of course, being half blind doesn't help any either. <laughs> anyway, the, what brought the, the, uh, the Oxford movement to a grinding halt and forced Newman out of the, out of the Anglican church was a, basically an alliance between the reactionaries and the radicals. And when he gave his talk on, you know, he, he published the tract on the 39 articles, which are basically the creed of the Anglican church. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
they were upset because what he tried to do was show that the fundamentals of the 39 articles agreed completely with those of the Catholic Church. Newman wasn't even the first one to, to, to do this. I mean, over the centuries, you know, since the Anglican schism and then the, the, the complete separation, there had been off and on, you know, efforts to show that, well, both the so-called Church of Rome and the Church of England agree in fundamentals. That the difference is political. Well, what the whole stink over Newman's final tract on the 39 articles showed is, no, it's more than political. There are fundamental questions of even the nature of religion here. And depending on how you interpret the 39 articles, you can either be Catholic or, as they would call it, Anglo-Catholic, mm -hmm. or you can be a complete uh, Christian in name only. Because the people pushing strongest to get rid of Newman were the socialists. Uh, this was Robert Owen, was probably the, the, the premier English socialist for a while. Uh, have you ever heard of New Harmony in Indiana? No. No. Well, I'm from Evansville, and it's a stone's throw from New Harmony, which was the utopian settlement created first by the Rappites, purchased by Robert Owen, who was a leading capitalist socialist. See, most people think that socialism started as a reaction against capitalism. No. The early socialists loved capitalists. They wanted the money. They all sought for capitalist patrons to fund their schemes. Now, even though the conditions created by capitalism led to socialism, the first socialists were not anti-capitalist. They were anti-Catholic. Organized religion was the chief target of the socialists. And Robert Owen, after he purchased New Harmony from the Rappites and didn't make a go of it, shall we say, we'll be polite. He ran it into the ground. Mm -hmm. On July 4th, 1826, he made his speech a declaration of mental independence. Now, note the date. Mm -hmm. That was the 50th anniversary of American independence. Mm -hmm. And after he made this speech, Owen ticked off everybody in America and soon had to leave the country. Because what he did was advocate the abolition of private property, except, of course, what he owned, uh, the abolition of marriage and family, except for his wife and kids, uh -huh. and the abolition of all organized religion, except, of course, for worship of him. Now, as I said, constantly when I tell these things, I have to say, I'm not making this up. In fact, Fulton Sheen actually referred to that speech when he came out with his uh, column and then his talks on a declaration of dependence. He wasn't responding to the American Declaration of Independence. He was responding to Robert Owen's Declaration of Mental Independence. <laughs> As I said, this is so complicated and so, so wide-ranging. Anyway, uh, Robert Owen ended up you know, getting into spiritualism and having conversations with Benjamin Franklin and Isaac Newton after they were dead. Uh, but <laughs> I didn't make that up. Uh, anyway, still in, in, in the United States, Orestes Brownson and Father Isaac Hecker, they started out socialist. Uh, they ended up at the Brook Farm uh, Commune. Uh, which became socialist. It was a transcendentalist commune uh, and then became uh, 
a Fourierist phalanx. Uh, and if I, I can't remember all the people who were at, at, at Brook Farm, but it's like a, a whole list of people from the intellectual uh, life of the early 19th century in America. You had Orestes Brownson, Isaac Hecker, the Alcotts. You, you've heard of Louisa May Alcott. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, Alcott went off and started his own commune. Uh, was it Fruitville, Fruit Farm, some, Fruit something. Uh, and it kind of was. Uh, they were totally vegan, but not all vegetables. They could only eat aspiring vegetables, those that grew upward, not downward. Again, I didn't make this up. <laughs> uh, oh, they were getting so hungry, though, at one point, uh, uh, Alcott said that, well, you can eat potatoes if you mash them and arrange them in aesthetic designs on the plate. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, one of the things that Brownson, oh, Father Isaac Hecker, he became a big wheel in, in Catholicism in the United States. He was the founder of the Paulists. Mm -hmm. Later, a bad translation of a of a biography of him made its way to France and became an inspiration for the modernists, which, of course, Isaac Hecker completely repudiated, uh, although he died in eight, 1887, just as the modernist movement was really getting started. But he completely rejected socialism and, and modernism and esotericism. And... Uh, well, basically, as, as founder of the Paulists, which may not be completely orthodox today, but that their founder was, mm -hmm. and probably sh should end up being canonized. But if you have a bunch of modernists and others agitating for your canonization, it probably is not going to happen anytime soon, because that would be taken as a confirmation of their beliefs, right. uh, which is the same reason why, getting back to the Middle Ages, which we didn't get to before, uh, Blessed Joachim of Flora, mm -hmm. uh, he is regarded as a beatus, not for his writings. All of his writings were condemned. They were the inspiration for the Fraticelli, you know, the, the Franciscan spirituals who attacked the Pope. And this is covered in one of Chesterton's books uh, on St. Francis of Assisi, mm -hmm. where the one thing you learn about St. Francis of Assisi is that he is not the guy that the socialists think he was. <laughs> did, did you ever remember the, the one Simpsons episode where they they're asking that you know Bart and Lisa a question says most overrated saint and they both answer in chorus in a depressed tone of voice Saint Francis of Assisi <laughs> that's because he is venerated for all the wrong reasons yeah, yeah. and this Chesterton tried to correct that in his book but I'm not sure how well he succeeded uh, Anyway, one of the things that Orestes Brownson noted in his many essays against socialism was that socialism always tries to take Christian language, especially Catholic language, and adapt it and give it new meanings. And he says, nowhere has Satan you know, done better work than to convince people that the message of Christ himself can be found in socialism. This whole idea of Jesus being the first socialist dates from this time. Okay. Uh, I'm not, Henri de Saint-Simon hinted that Jesus was the first socialist, but I'm not sure who, who it was that first came out 
and said, you know, that Jesus was the first socialist. And if you're not being a first uh, a socialist, you're not being a true Christian. This is another theme that runs through all the early modernism and esotericism and socialism is on a, what Dr. Julian Strube of Heidelberg University calls an obsession with a return to true Christianity or their version of it. Mm -hmm. And Monsignor Ronald Knox makes that same point when he talks about enthusiasm. Of course, he focuses on the, sixth, uh, the 17th and 18th century in that book, which is on your reading assignment list. For <laughs> I got it. Go ahead and keep talking. I'll pick it up. Okay. Uh, and anyway, uh, it was part of Gregory the Sixteenth. Oh, okay, you you took, you got it. Okay, and of course, take a couple of weeks to read it and catch all his little sly jokes in there. Uh, now, so basically, Brownstone was making the point says socialists love to adopt, especially Catholic language and even ceremonies and music, everything that they can get, and turn it to the purposes of socialism. Now. One of the main things that they did in the 1830s and 40s was to hijack the term social justice. Now, prior to the 18, you know, in the early 1830s, social justice was being used as a term to mean pretty much anything that the, the user wanted it to mean. It could mean the administration of legal justice, you know, the, the legal system. It could mean general social conditions, it, anything. Uh, about 1835 or so, uh, this Monsignor Luigi Taparelli, a Jesuit, who was a leader in the Thomist revival started by Gregory XVI, started using it to mean, you know, the exercise of virtues, individual virtues, in a manner consistent with natural law and Catholic doctrine. In other words, things that you are doing that will help improve society that will have a beneficial effect but always in a manner consistent with the you know god's nature which is the basis of natural law and what the catholic church teaches no more of these shortcuts that the socialists and the modernists were taking you know like the end does not justify the means that was basically as far as Taparelli took the principle of social justice mm -hmm. Uh, but the term was such a good one that the socialists grabbed it and used it to mean, basically, that the end justifies the means. Anything that you do that you intend to, you know, make, you know, to help people either individually or collectively or to make society better, that's social justice. Whether or not it conforms to the principles of natural law and the teachings of the church. As a result, Catholics stopped using the term social justice. I think between uh, 1840, when Taparelli published his theory of natural rights or something, I, I think that's the title of the book, uh, and 1922, when Pius XI was elected, there were only two curial instances of the term social justice, and they were both kind of vague. Uh, because basically the socialists had hijacked the term. And if you, even today, I just had somebody yesterday come on one of my Facebook postings and they saw the word social and they said, everything social is communist. 
I said, well, did you read the post? Don't have to. It's it's communist. <laughs> uh, and so that was his great contribution. And even the socialists love to, you know, cite Taparelli, but then they twist what he said. They, they kick out the adherence to natural law and Catholic doctrine and just say, basically, the end justifies the means. And Taparelli said it was okay. No, he didn't. Uh, then when Gregory XVI died in... Uh, 1846, and Pius IX was elected. Mm -hmm. He was a reformer, and he was a liberal, but he was a liberal of the American type. The radicals thought he was a liberal of their type. He was actually the first pope to have visited the, you know, the New World, mm -hmm. the Americas. He was sent on a special uh, mission by Pius VII, uh, to Chile and the new South American republics to establish, you know, a rapprochement with the, with the new republics to assure them that the Catholic Church is still the Catholic Church. And just because you had a revolution doesn't mean that you have to become non-Catholics. Mm -hmm. That was the basic, that was the gist of it. And of course, Pius IX greatly admired Pius VII, especially because he has been persecuted by Napoleon. And even after his release, still tried to reform the papal states, which, of course, the reactionaries were still in power and he didn't get anywhere with it. He did establish a couple of minor reforms and that was about it. But Pius IX, when he came in, he instituted sweeping reforms. You know, the entire administration of the papal states. He tried to separate, you know, the civil government from the religion, which, you know, the real Catholic understanding of separation of church and state. Uh, of course, what the secularists and the radicals wanted by separation of church and state was the state controls religion and destroys it if possible. Right. Now, of course, not all radicals would say that, but that, those were the extreme radicals because they wanted to get rid of the church, period. You don't want somebody looking, looking over your shoulder and telling you that you're doing something wrong, do you? <laughs> Just because you want to do what you want to do. Anyway, then came, I mean, he even... Pius IX even established the first constitution for the papal states. They called it the fundamental statute. Gladstone thought it was modeled on the unwritten English constitution. No, it was modeled on the U.S. constitution with corrections. I mean, you don't want slavery in there. You don't want a few other things. And the only power civilly that Pius IX retained was a veto over any laws that came into conflict with natural law or the doctrines of the church or went against the church administratively. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, he turned everything over to the civil government, the laity, which of course the radicals accused him of not doing. This was after, of course, that he murdered the prime minister, who was a layman. <laughs> uh, then came the, the revolutions of 1848, which if you know anything about that period of time, they were basically socialist. And Pius IX had to leave Rome, otherwise they'd have killed him. Uh, and when he came back, finally, you know, all the history books will say that he became a reactionary. No, he didn't. I mean, even George Weigel is taking this, this line. But take a look at what was going on. You had, you know, radical liberal uprisings, people trying to kill him. You had Austria, Sardinia, Naples and Sicily, France, everybody and his brother trying to grab the Papal States. Uh, 
it was all Pius IX could do to, re to keep some of the reforms in place and keep from losing the papal states. Because that, under the conditions of the time, that would have meant that the church lost its independence. It would have become under the domination of whatever nationality seized the Vatican. Mm -hmm. And this was at this time that Alexis de Tocqueville was foreign minister of the Second French Republic. This is when he had his run-ins with de Lamennais. And you know, a lot of people today think that de Tocqueville wasn't a real Catholic or anything, but he always said he was a Catholic. He wasn't practicing. We won't get into that because toward the end of his life, he returned to the sacraments, but it's not clear what his problem was, but he was an honest man and there was something he couldn't accept. So he wasn't going to be going to church every Sunday saying that he did when he didn't. But he always called himself a Catholic. And he defended Pius IX to the French legislature. He said, the Pope has put in all the reforms he can. If we insist on any more, he's going to lose you know, the papal states because they'll, they'll dissolve. Of course, the radicals kept insisting that he was wrong, but the moderates and the reactionaries supported him as much as they could. So Pius IX didn't turn into a reactionary. He remained a liberal but a liberal under siege, because it was only a few years later that Sardinia managed to grab the rest of the papal states and bottle the Pope up in Rome. I mean, Rome was the only territory left. And uh, basically, and of course, Sardinia claimed Rome as well. And of course, domination of the, of the papacy, which would have turned the Catholic Church into the, the, the Church of Italy, if they allowed it to... Uh, to exist because the, the prime minister of Sardinia, Cavour, wanted to eliminate the church. I mean, it's in, it's in competition with the state. You can't have that. I mean, uh, so basically, Pius IX was torn between the radicals who wanted to save the people from the church and the reactionaries who wanted to save the church from the people. Now, uh, oh, well, we're getting toward the end. <laughs> I, I warned you, I was only going to bring this up to the, to, the, to the end of the pontificate of Pius IX, which admittedly was the longest in history. And, uh, and John Paul II was the second longest. Uh, Leo XIII was, is the third. And, but until the election of uh, John Paul II, what you had was the longest pontificate in history and then the second longest pontificate in history, just when the radicals and the reactionaries thought they were going to be able to seize power. They were fooled. In fact, do you know why Leo XIII was elected? Yeah, they thought he was going to die quick. Yeah. So then, then they got stuck with him for, what, 25 years? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. We'll try that trick again. I think the Holy Spirit may have other plans. You know? Anyway, it was in the 1848 revolution that... Karl Marx came out with what is considered, you know, the communist document, the Communist Manifesto. And in it, he defined what he gave what is probably the best definition of socialism or communism, using the terms interchangeably. Uh, he says, the theory of the communists can be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. Now, you'll have some socialists say, oh, but we permit private property. 
Actually, you don't, because you have to understand what property is. Property is not the thing you own. It is, one, the right that is absolute in every single human being to be an owner. Uh, Aristotle didn't consider you even human if you didn't have the right to own. That's the right to property. It is absolute and God-given. Then there are the rights of property. And these are socially determined by, you know, the, the community, the, you know, the state, and based on expedience, necessity, uh, and custom, tradition. The only proviso is that the exercise of property must never be defined in any way that undermines the right to be an owner. So that what socialism does is say, you can be an owner, but we reserve the right to take it from you at any time. Mm -hmm. So that, are you really allowing private property? No, you're allowing state ownership, but custody in, in private hands for a while, as long as it suits your purposes. So when the socialists say, but we allow private property, no, you don't. So Karl Marx was right that the theory of the communists and the socialists, the abolition of private property. Now, why didn't Karl Marx call his system socialism? Well, there's a, there was a good reason for that. By the time Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, the followers of Robert Owen, remember him, mm -hmm. had preempted the term socialism. And of course, everybody else was using it as well. And Marx and Engels, and frankly, you know, I've heard the contention, and I'm trying to look into it, that a lot of what we think of as Marx's thought was actually Engels. Engels was one of these capitalist socialists, you know, a better breed than the common herd, so that it's okay for him to own something, but not everybody else. Uh, so that they were saying, well, the followers of Robert Owen have preempted the term socialism. We'll go and use the slightly older term communism for our scientific socialism to distinguish it from those dumb socialists who insist upon mis mis mixing religion in with what they're talking about. Now, of course, then Karl Marx and Eng Frederick Engels went and did the same thing that the religious and utopian socialists were doing by going after religion and basically establishing the state as religion. I mean, what's the difference? Uh, so it wasn't all that scientific after all. Although Marx, to do him justice, Marx did make several good points. He did correctly identify the basic problem as the concentration of private property in the hands of a very few people. Mm -hmm. Concentrating property in the hands of the state is not the solution. The solution would be, as Leo XIII would point out in 1891, is to make as many people as possible into owners not to super concentrate ownership in the hands of just the state, meaning controlled by state bureaucrats. Now, it didn't mean that, you know, Pius IX didn't become a reactionary, and he didn't give up his reform efforts either. He just shifted them to the religious sphere. So you had to try to combat the new things instead of political reforms, you had the religious reforms, you had the 1864 syllabus of error, errors, mm -hmm. which is, of course, the bete noir of all the liberals, the progressives, the socialists, and everybody else. Read it carefully. It is purely a religious document 
And, you know, when they're condemning, when Pius IX was condemning liberalism, he wasn't condemning American type liberal democracy. He was condemning the English, he was criticizing the English type of liberal democracy and condemning the French or European type of liberal democracy, which is what the church still does. Uh, and if you look at his, at Pius IX's encyclicals, there too, he was trying to reform, you know, the Catholic, not reform Catholic doctrine, but to, you know, refute the errors of, of the socialists, the modernists, and the New Agers. Uh, I'm anticipating by using the term New Age, because that didn't really come until the 1880s or 1890s, mm -hmm. to describe the esotericism. And he probably established more dioceses than anyone since the early church, you know, uh, well, we won't get into all the the, the 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 church reforms that Pius IX sponsored, but for a pontificate of however long it was, from 1846 to 1878, he did one heck of a lot of work. Yeah. He didn't just sit in the Vatican and say, no, no, which is, of course, that whole P.O. no-no bit, which, of course, no one ever heard Pius IX say, no, no, to any reform. That is a liberal legend. It's, it's like the black legend of Pius IX. Uh, but you still had the problems going on. Socialism was spreading everywhere. Modernism was gaining ground everywhere. You had, you know, the, the esoteric things. You had these new religions popping up, spirit rapping, the occult. I mean, most people don't think of the 19th century as this hotbed of all this garbage going on. But it was. Mm -hmm. And so, finally, uh, in I think it was soon after he, uh, uh, you know, issued the uh, the Syllabus of Errors in 1864, or no, no, or no, no, no. Excuse me, it's wrong. It was soon after he uh, promulgated the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Somehow he tied this in with you know the whole modernist socialist movement, and. Basically, our Blessed Mother is supposed to be, you know, our protection against this, or one of them. But then, a few days after that, he called, you know, he announced his plans to hold the first ecumenical council since Trent. Mm -hmm. And most people can't understand, well, why did he call a council? We didn't need one. It was needed desperately, because what you had was... That theory of certitude of Delamine had pretty much taken over a lot of people's understanding of Catholicism. So, in the First Vatican Council, there were two key doctrines defined. One, papal infallibility. Mm -hmm. This was not to, you know, extend the power of the Pope the way the liberal press tried to put it. It was to rein in people's concept of what the Pope is supposed to be doing. He didn't have this cosmic power that Delamine claimed he did. It was very restricted. The Pope speaks infallibly under certain circumstances, conditions, in matters of faith and morals. Period. Nothing else. Not matters of science. And what a lot of people forget is theology is a science. Mm -hmm. Because every now and then you'll see something in a history book where a pope made a mistake in this. This calls infallibility into question. No, it doesn't. That was a theological matter, not a matter of faith and morals. I've, I've got a big, long story about that. But 
actually there was a papal endorsement of Delamine's work under Leo XII. Well, if the Pope is infallible, how could he endorse something like that? Well, it's a theological matter, a matter of science. It wasn't faith or morals. Mm -hmm. Now, the other one, the other key doctrine defined at the First Vatican Council is the one everybody forgets about, the primacy of the intellect, the role of human reason. Because what Delamine did, what the socialists do, what the, the modernists do, and the New Agers, it's faith. Faith alone. They're, they're basically fideists. They justify everything they want to do on their faith in what they think God's will is, or what they accept as God's will, or their own inner light. But it's the triumph of the will, which is totally faith-based. They may say they're being scientific or whatever, but it's faith. And so what the First Vatican Council did was define the, the, the basis of God, of our knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law. And as the council had it, it says, if anyone says that the one true God, our creator and Lord, cannot be known with certainty from the things that have been made by the natural light of human reason, let him be anathema. And this was repeated in Pius X's Oath Against Modernism. It's the first clause in the oath. Mm -hmm. You know, I affirm that I accept that God's existence and, of, and the natural law can be shown by human reason. It doesn't say it has been. It just says it can. Now, I happen to believe that, you, that Aquinas did prove the knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law by human reason. Mortimer Adler did not. But... That's not the point. The point is Adler accepted that it can be, not that it had been. Then, of course, he presented his proof, his own proof, and I looked at that and I said, this sounds a lot like Aquinas. I can't tell the difference, but I'll let the philosophers argue that one out. Now, and it was also in 1950, Pius XII in Humani Generis, the second paragraph, and it, where he sa stated outright, he says, strictly speaking, Knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law written in the hearts of all men may be known by the force and light of human reason alone. Of course, he then goes on to explain at great length, you must have your, your reason guided and illuminated by faith, because you don't want to make the mistake that some of the early scholastics did and separate completely, you know, reason from mysticism. I mean, there is a very serious and important role for faith, but your faith cannot contradict what you have proven by reason. Of course, the problem is, have you really proved it by reason? And have you really proved it, you know, is your argument for faith really logical? That's where the work comes in. But to reject one because of the other, you, the Catholic Church says, you can't do that. If they're in, if they appear to be in conflict, you haven't done enough work yet. Now, we're coming to the end now. <laughs> I see the big smile on your face. Uh, in Pius IX died in 1878, but the basic problem was unresolved. You know, people saw what was coming out of the, of the First Vatican Council, and they pretty much did not quite as bad as they did with the Second Vatican Council, but it was pretty bad. They were saying, oh, the Pope's trying to claim that he is, you know, speaks only the truth in everything. 
That's what papal infallibility is. These Catholics don't know what they're saying. Well, that wasn't what the Catholics were saying. What was it Fulton Sheen said? says, very few people hate the Catholic Church. Millions of people hate what they think the Catholic Church is based on weird things like that. Now, the Church had, up to the end of the pontificate of Pius IX, reacted to the new things, primarily socialism, as you know, because that was really gaining force at this time, uh, with philosophical theory and religious doctrine and trying to reform individual lives. But there was no specific program to do this. And other than what Pius IX had tried back in 1846 with these uh, reforms that got hijacked, but he left out one important thing. There was no way for ordinary pe people to become owners of capital. I mean, as Daniel Webster said exactly 200 years ago in the Massachusetts Const Constitutional Convention of 1820, power naturally and necessarily follows property. You can teach people all you want. They can have all the goodwill in the world, but if they don't have the power to follow through on it, it's probably not going to get done. So we, we leave you hanging in 1878 with the death of Pius IX and the upcoming election of Leo XIII with the knowledge of, oh no, we're hopeless. How are people going to get private property? I mean, how? We don't know. Not a hanger, it's a, cl uh, it's a cliffhanger, not a uh, or a teaser for the next episode. <laughs> I wish I had a punchier ending, but that's a <laughs> good enough. Hey, Michael, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's it's nice to be able to talk to a captive audience. Yeah. <laughs> well, right now it's just me, but a little, we'll get we'll get the captive audience later. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, take care. Okay. Thanks a lot.